So for example, we have to recognize that education inequity is violence, right? A lack of access to quality employment opportunities is violence. Underemployment being mostly plagued, uh, mostly uh, present within communities of color, that should be looked at as violence, right? The lack of home ownership opportunities should be looked at as violence. And we know that there are systems and structures that contribute to many of these entities being as problematic as they are and have been for years. Welcome to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action. My name is Casey O'Hollick. And I'm Ashley Benson. On this episode, we speak with Jamal Smith, racial justice and policy advocacy expert. Jamal is the manager at the Office of Violence Prevention, Milwaukee Health Department. Bridge the City continues to focus on coverage of the local Black Lives Matter movement. For a lot of you listening, this is fresh and top of mind, but we want to give some historical relevance for you all. As we mentioned in episode 83, George Floyd's recent murder at the hand of an on-duty Minneapolis police officer catalyzed protests around the world. But the black community in Milwaukee, like in other cities across the U.S., has endured a long history of police violence. More recently, Milwaukee's history of police community relations has been fraught with racial tension, police brutality lawsuits, and a federal Department of Justice investigation that concluded the department has exhibited patterns of racial discrimination. With Jamal, we discuss the support for and role of the Office of Violence Prevention at the Black Lives Matter protests and leaned into a conversation about expanding the definition of institutionalized violence in Milwaukee. In this quick interview, we also discussed racism as a public health crisis and the stamina of the movement. This interview was originally recorded live on River West Radio and edited for the pod. You can tune in every Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. to catch us in action on 1041 River West Radio WXRW or riverwestradio.com. If you want to stay up to date on how you can best get involved in your Milwaukee community, Subscribe from wherever you get podcasts to get new episodes dropped into your feed every week. If you like what we're doing and want to support our work, consider also becoming a patron of ours on Patreon. That said, we'd much rather have your money go toward the movement for black lives. Go to our website, bridgethecitypodcast.com to see a list of organizations continuing this work that you can support financially, as well as a quick list of resources to begin or continue your anti-racism efforts. Jamal Smith, Violence Prevention Manager, City of Milwaukee Health Department, Office of Violence Prevention. So you have been on the ground at the protests. I have participated in chants led by your team. I've run into um, Reggie Moore at the protests. What has your experience been on the ground? Experience has been beautiful. Um, And before uh, before I go further, I just want to say the Office of Violence Prevention, we are there as a supporting entity. Uh, for the protests, we definitely support uh, people having the constitutional right to to voice their their concern about the injustices that are happening to Black folks across this country, and it, and, and especially here in Milwaukee and abroad. Um, we are not necessarily the leaders. We will uh, defer that to uh, Khalil Coleman, Frank Frank mm-hmm. uh, Frank Nitti, 
and those who are really pushing the initiative across, uh, who have been pushing this initiative for the last 12 days uh, across our streets in the city. Um, but we are there to support them. And we're there to show uh, solidarity in fighting for, for uh, injustice uh, that has been plaguing our country, not just within the last 12 days, but just for, for, for centuries. Mm -hmm. we, we're continuously to see the same injustices that existed for, uh, for generation to generation rearing its rearing its head right now and now we're in a prime time to bring about a huge huge movement that has a grand fight against racial mm -hmm. injustice and this is work that you often see as violence interrupters so i would like to kind of frame you know why it's important that you're there why the office of violence prevention supports us so much with the kind of a background on what the office of violence prevention does would you mind sharing a little bit about that to our listeners Sure. So the Office of Violence Prevention is focused on uh, partnering with communities, uh, businesses, government entities, uh, community-based organizations and the like to uh, support efforts that elevate violence prevention. But the first thing is defining what violence looks like. And most people will look at violence from a, a, uh, an interpersonal or a communal aspect, you know, uh, with some of the violence that happens within communities, whether that's in rural or in urban communities, whether that's gun violence, suicide, or the likes. But in addition to that, we also have to explore the impact of systemic and structural violence and how uh, we have seen the historical impact of racism leading towards a lot of the oppression and the disparities that we see for black and brown people across this country. So for example, we have to recognize that education inequity is violence, right? A lack of access to quality employment opportunities is violence. Underemployment being mostly plagued, uh, mostly uh, present within communities of color, that should be looked at as violence, right? The lack of home ownership opportunities should be looked at as violence. And we know that there are systems and structures that contribute to many of these entities being as problematic as they are and have been for years. So getting people to understand that violence comes in multiple forms and how we look at it from a, pub a public health aspect then leads to having the conversation about how injustice that we see, whether that's state sanctioned or uh, police violence, you know, in this case of talking about George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or, uh, you know, Sandra Bland or, or Tamir Rice, all of the different examples, uh, Corin Gaines, uh, all the different examples of black men and black women that have been killed oh, and black trans and black uh, queer uh, people who have been killed at the hands of police or other vigilantes, we have to also recognize that there are systems and structures in play that, perp that perpetuate that violence as well. And if we're only gonna look at one form of violence, whether, whether that's uh, the conversation about gun violence or suicides or what have you, but not, not about systemic or structural, then we're doing ourselves a disservice about addressing the complexities of violence. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I think that when you give violence a definition like that, myself as a white ally, I like, and I, this whole week, I'm just like, I have so much to learn. I have so much to unlearn. I think of violence and I think of gun violence or when, you know, there's like um something with the police happens and there's violence there. Um, and I, I less so often think about it as a public health issue and as it as not access to housing or, or employment. So thank you for saying that. Um, I, I have a lot of work to do. My next question was going to be about more about the protests, but actually I was wondering if you wanted to interrupt with your question about um, pushing 
Milwaukee forward. Yeah, absolutely. So Jamal, as you're speaking and you're talking about how this is encompassing so many historical contexts um, and beyond maybe a limited definition of violence, um, it was really making me think of how organizers and community organizations such as the Office of Bi- Violence Prevention, Block, Lit, Safe and Sound, uh, and more have been pushing Milwaukee to consider Black voices, Black lives, and Black communities before this month and before this, this uprising. Um, how do you envision these movements can, to continue and to have stamina over time? Oh, well, I, I believe that the, stand, the stamina comes from the, the strength of our ancestors who continuously pushed us and taught us about the impact of racial injustice. And we're seeing it within our own vein today. Um, I believe that when you have organizations like Block, uh, shout out to Angela Lang, Lick, shout out to Dakota um, and uh, African-American Roundtable, shout out to Marquesa. Um, when you have these organizations are really picking up the mantle from social justice leaders before us and saying that we are going to continue this fight until we truly see that justice that we've been calling for uh, for decades. And I believe that um, that this 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 uh, this work does not stop. This work is going to continue. And people are, are, are really, I mean, obviously there's some frustration here because here we are in 2020, in the 21st century, you would think that we wouldn't be in a position where we have to keep saying Black Lives Matter. Unfortunately, we do, because there's been countless examples showing that they do not. So um, the fact of the matter is, we are not just doing, the momentum stands behind the fact that we're not just doing this for us, we're doing this for our children. We're doing this for their children that are coming along. Our prayer is that when when our fight is over, the fight has been won to the point where our children don't have to fight anymore and their children don't have to fight anymore. That is why you see there's so many groups that have come together and, and formed all of these collaborations and figuring out ways, because we understand that systemic and structural violence or violence as a whole is a complex issue, you know, and there's, there's an easy answer to a complex problem, but it's always the wrong one. And the reason why it's wrong is because we cannot address a complex problem with a singular approach. So the fact that you have multiple organizations coming together that are that are looking for a place of solvency, but in doing it within their respective lanes means that we're we're addressing we're addressing a systemic issue from a complex systemic approach. So it's not it's not just that it's one voice or two voices or three voices, there are countless voices that are at the table right now speaking up against injustice that also helps to lead uh, to to elevate or, or to, to combat um, any fatigue that may happen because we know that this can be definitely, definitely can be hard work. Uh, it can be tiresome, it can be grueling, but the fact that we have so many people who are at the table willing to do this work at the, at the maximum level shows that we are gonna have the stamina, the stamina to continue this fight. Yeah, thank you. And I think that um, brings up a really good point of like working together and collaborating and making sure that it's not just on on one person's back or one person's fight. It's um, really a collaborative effort. And um, I'm, I've been thinking about that often, too, of like how can and this goes with the stamina and just a follow up is like how to ensure. I think that this is a time where like mental health is important to keep that front and center, but there's almost like 
how do you do that? And so that's kind of a question that I would, I would like to lean into a little bit more of like, do you have any, um, how do we work together and make sure that we're checking in with our people, but also just like recognizing that it's not, not going to be okay, but we need to keep working and we need to keep our health and um, everything front and center. Well, the first thing I'll say is that we have to be okay knowing that things are not okay, right? Um, there's a lot of times where, you know, people like to approach this from a, uh, a utopic angle of thinking, you know, if we just keep doing this, eventually everything will go away. Well, it's not that easy, right? And, we, and if it were that easy, I'm pretty confident we wouldn't still be here. <laughs> so it's just recognizing that it's okay to, in some moments to not be okay. It's okay to cry. It's okay to vent. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be emotional. You know, it's okay to grieve, right? And it and grieving doesn't mean you're just grieving somebody who 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 was impacted directly. It was okay. You know, look at look at how many people grieved when uh, during the uh, the unfortunate uh, tragic death of Kobe Bryant, right? I didn't know Kobe Bryant directly, however. And I definitely had, I felt like I had a connection to Kobe and that was a grieving moment for me and a lot of people, right? So it's okay to grieve and, and recognize that you're not okay. But the other part of that is we need to make sure that we're constantly checking on each other, right? We're constantly giving each other that affirmation of, you know, I, I support you, you support me, we support each other. Right. And we're going to do this together. We're going to fight together. We're going to keep pushing together. We're going to uh, we're going to uh, combat this this level of injustice together that at those affirmations and daily reminders are needed because we understand how toxic and how draining the impact of injustice can be the, and the weight of injustice can be. So it's that constant reminder, those constant affirmations, and then recognizing it's okay to not be okay in some spaces and taking the, taking the time that you need to be able to deal with those emotions in that space. Thank you for that answer. Um, I recently attended a street medic training that was ran by a group of mostly anarchists, which I've never really had the opportunity to learn about or hear from. Um, but one of their rules is that they don't police how other people react and they don't judge how other people do. They just worry about themselves and make sure that their safety. Right. Um, and some of the media backlash across the nation is that protesters have been, violent and that there's been looting and fires and there's been a couple viral videos that are going out one is with the police union boss in new york city and he's like stop treating us like animals and the other one is kind of the same with uh, the la mayor um garcetti um saying like we need we need peace but then they, they mirror it with examples of police brutality against the protesters um so my question to you is how do we respect the response in the black community as they deal as the black community and our allies deal with this civil unrest? Um, yeah. Does that make sense? You said, how do we respect the response? Yeah. Of the how black do we community? respect? Like, I feel like, you know, people in my family, for example, they just, they're like, I, you know, people can't be looting. People can't be violent, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I just want to say to them, like, this is a trauma response. This is a valid response. Um, mm -hmm. and you're, no one can see this, but you're smiling at me. I can't decide if it's a, if it's okay or not. <laughs> um, but I kind of want to get, uh, yeah. I want to hear your reaction to that, if that's okay. Well, there's a couple things to that. Um, the first thing is it's amazing how, 
um, people are telling oppressed folks, giving them ways to be to voice their this their anger of oppression. Right. You know, there, there's no uh, there's no gentle way to be racist. <laughs> so I, I think it's kind of hilarious that there's supposed to be this gentle way for us to express our frustration of being discriminated or marginalized against. Uh, right. The second time, the second thing I have to say is this never seems to come up when people do the looting and destruction of properties when teams win championships. Mm. Um We've seen countless times where college teams or pro teams win uh, their respective championships. And the next thing you know, people are all out in the streets, flipping over cars, uh, burning up police cars, climbing Mm -hmm. up poles, busting windows out. Right. And and the common response is, uh, well, those are just young people being young people, because usually within those crowds, they're predominantly white. Mm -hmm. Right. So when they're seen as. Uh, when those crowds are seen as doing pretty much the same thing that you see that has been seen within the last couple of weeks, mm-hmm. oh, there's a pass given there, right? Well, there's just they're just young people being young people. You know, that's just a youthful exuberance. But here we are expressing our frustration because of the fact that we're tired of our lives not mattering. And there's a proper way in which we're supposed to do it. Now, make no mistake, we don't want to see, we don't want to see the destruction of, of, of communities. We don't want to see that. But you also, I'm also not in a position to tell people how to deal with their anger and their frustration. Mm-hmm. If you want to help people get over their anger and frustration, deal with the root cause of it. Mm-hmm. Deal with the, in, with the systemic, the racial injustices that we see. Deal with the structures that are in place that allow for uh, police to continue uh, their bias policing against people of color. Right. Look at the harsher sentencing when it comes to uh, drug arrest and drug drug possession, even though the rates are similar between uh, white offenders and black offenders. Uh, you know, all of those different. And that's just criminal justice. We didn't even talk about education. We didn't talk about health care, you know, all, and all of the different disparities there. But you have to understand the frustration that comes when you continuously deny somebody uh, equality, fundamental access to food clothing, shelter, uh, education, and then you knowing that that's going to breed a level of anger and frustration that's going to lead to crime and violence. So let's not make it seem as if the reason why this is happening is because Black people are inherently violent or criminal. This is not the reason why this is happening. If you want to, if you want to see an end to the uprising, then that means and to the protests, then that means you deal with the injustice. There's no protests without any injustice. There's no uprising without the injustice. So in order for that to continue to be uh, to be the issue, then deal with the injustice. I think that's a really good point. And I think that you've, you've touched on this a couple times now about all these different things that are connected. Right now we're, we're, we're focusing or the, the, trigger point, I guess, is um, police brutality, but it's so much more than that. And it has been for, I mean, the founding of this country. And so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm wondering as I have conversations and people are like, okay, well, if we, if we arrest all of the police officers in, officers in Minneapolis, or if the Minneapolis uh, community council is saying we're pledging to, to radically change public safety, they're like, is that going to be it and I'm like, well, absolutely not, because we have that's 
such a small step and every city has their own work to do, right? So I'm wondering though, because some people are like, okay, well, I don't want to take away from what's happening right now, but I do want to talk about healthcare and how black women are treated. Or I do want to talk about the education system and the structures of property taxes affects black and brown children differently than sometimes white children or wealthier neighborhoods. So like, what do we do? Like, how do we, how do we wrap those conversations and say like, this is so much bigger than what we're just seeing right now in this spot. I think that takes for us to have our own conversations within our own respective places and spaces in addition to having forums such as this, right? Uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident. I spoke at a, a, a Black Lives Rally, Black Lives Matter rally in Menominee Falls this past weekend. And uh, the objective there was to really challenge, essentially to challenge white people that you have to start being just as vocal about the injustice as people of color, black folks in particular. It can't just be a black person or, or, or a Latino person message, right? This has to be a message that is all in, that, it, that has all hands on deck of really elevating the injustices that are happening. And I think that it's going to require for all of us to be informed of the injustice because there are gonna be people who are gonna present arguments that are going to challenge your statement about the disparities that exist within healthcare or education or home ownership, right? Or, you know, as, as your response to uh, property taxes, right? The average median income of, of black families in, in Milwaukee is less than 30,000. But we have some, uh, or excuse me, uh, less than 35,000. But we have predominantly white families is over 60, right? So when we're seeing, when you're seeing the income gap there, Right, and that's just in Milwaukee. So now let's step to a neighborhood like Shorewood or Whitefish Bay, right? And seeing how the at now what would be now I'm sure that'd be an even bigger gap when you're talking about average median income family-wise in Whitefish Bay and Shorewood in comparison to Milwaukee, and how that then turns into the investments into the school systems through property taxes, and how that ends up leading to a, a, a better opportunity within those school districts versus in Milwaukee public schools, right? But then, then, and then how does that turn into a conversation about, well, property taxes are an issue because home ownership is not really being, is, is, is really being denied black folks in this city because we're seeing that more, that well-qualified blacks are being denied home mortgage loans at higher rates than least qualified white families, right? And that's coming from, doing work with the Community Reinvestment Act Coalition, uh, the National Coalition, uh, National Community Reinvestment Association, right, uh, coalition, but there's there's data to support that. So that means there's going to require all of us to take time to really get to learn the facts, learn the data, and uh, really study and see that this is not just made up information. Like this is stuff that is truly happening on a regular basis. And the fact that it's not being reported to the magnitude that it should be, but we're always reporting heavily on homicides within the community. That's why people always talk about black on black crime every time we bring up Black Lives Matter. Well, here's the difference. When, we, when crime happens within our community, we go to jail, right? And then we also have to, we have to also stop looking at crime as if it's a black issue only, as if it has nothing to do with proximity, uh, poverty, trauma, 
um, spatial inequality and also also realizing that white folks kill white folks too. Asian people kill Asian people. Latino people kill Latino people. It's not just a black issue when we talk about homicide, but we're knowing, we're realizing that that's using as a, being used as a diversion tactic to get away from what the actual mission of Black Lives Matter is. Absolutely, we see that. I see that very often um, when people try to deflect from what we're really talking about. So thank you for breaking it down like that as well. And most people don't even realize when it comes to gun-related deaths in the state of Wisconsin, most of those are perpetuated uh, through suicides and they happen in predominantly white communities. Mm -hmm. But that conversation doesn't happen a lot, right? Mm -hmm. It's just really the elevation of of the homicides and the gun violence that happens within our communities. What that is showing is that there are white folks in many of those rural areas that are also experiencing their own form of trauma, which is leading to those su the suicides, mm -hmm. right? But in instead, that's why it's so important that we're looking at violence from a public health issue instead of attempting to be divisive in the message and, and creating mechanisms on how we deal with violence based on populations. Whenever you talk about uh, violence as a public health issue, how does that translate into work that maybe policymakers can do or healthcare networks? Like, I, I feel like there is a big trend uh, or a big movement for trauma-informed care and talking about trauma as a public health issue. But how can we talk about, how can we make violence as a public health issue just as well-known as how trauma-informed care is becoming. So I think it takes the evaluation of, of the uh, the social determinants of health, right? And how we look at um, the ways in which people are living or being denied the opportunity to live and how then become uh, what is violent. For example, here in Milwaukee, uh, the Office of Violence Prevention facilitated community conversations which led to our blueprint for peace. Right. And within Blueprint, there are uh, conversations discussing, again, the impact of systemic and structural violence and elevating how uh, when it comes to public health, right, or health equity, people are, are at their most healthy when they're able to truly access the resources where they can live their best lives, which is the, the whole uh, mission and vision of the Milwaukee Health Department, live your best life. Right. So when it, when it comes to living your best life, that means that you have adequate health care, that you have adequate housing, that there's adequate education uh, for your children, that safety is is being elevated within your communities, that there's beautiful green space within your neighborhoods where people can take a walk and, 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 and just enjoy outdoor space without the threat of being of, of any crime or violence happening within their communities. Like that is when we talk about public health and when those things are being impacted. We have to understand that there are systems and structures in place that elevate uh, opportunities being afforded to some over others. And when we're talking about social capital, we understand that all neighborhoods, all people, all residents should have e equitable access to opportunities to live their best lives, regardless of racial background, gender identity, sexual orientation, social, social economic position. Everyone should have access to live their best lives. And when that's being denied or when that's not the case, then that's when we start to talk about how uh, social determinants of health are being impacted, how that then leads to the trauma that you were talking about, Ashley, and what that does to someone's psyche, which leads to that crime and violence that we see. 
right? So this is, again, not a conversation about how people are just inherently violent. There are, there are certain factors that have contributed to, that have been at the forefront leading to the crime and violence that we see. Yes. Thank you so much, Jamal. Um, we have to wrap up in just a few seconds. And before we do go, would you mind sharing those action steps with us? Sure. Uh, so the first uh, action step I would suggest is to support those grassroots organizations that are on the ground doing the work and elevating uh, anti-racism and uh, justice for all citizens. We have to understand that there are many, many organizations on ground, like the African American Roundtable, uh, Team Havoc, uh, Voces de la Frontera, Community Task Force, MKE, uh, Block, Lit, Leaders Igniting Transformation, and other neighborhood associations and residence groups that are all doing work on ground to combat racial injustice that is happening in our city. So make sure you learn about those organizations and not only uh, donate, uh, but go and volunteer. Be able to uh, go and support their work and work uh, close hand with them. The second one is don't be afraid to call out people who use that, like, that racial language. And I know this may be tough for many people because that could be a family member, that could be a friend, that could be uh, a, a spouse or what have you, but you should be in a position to have those challenging conversations when someone continuously elevates a visceral language of racial hatred, you should be willing to challenge them to think more uh, in, in a positive manner where it is not seen as if it's just spewing vitriolic messaging. And the last part is become familiar with the Blueprint for Peace. This was a document that has been, that was facilitated by the City of Milwaukee Office of Violence Prevention, but this was a community-led moral document around violence prevention. And it expands on ways in which violence can be addressed from a public health aspect to where we're not just looking at interpersonal and communal violence, but systemic, structural, and institutional violence as well, which is the producer of many of the, of, of the violent uh, incidents that we see within marginalized, disenfranchised communities. So become familiar with the language within the blueprint for peace as well. Thank you again to Jamal Smith for joining us. The episode you just listened to originally aired live on Bridge the City Radio Hour, our 30-minute show on River West Radio. You can find us there Wednesdays, 5.30 p.m. to 6 p.m. And if you like what we're doing, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash bridge the city. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bridge the city. We're still all volunteers here and supporters like you are what keep this going. And if you like what you hear and have suggestions on who we should interview or what topics we should cover, give us a shout. As always, let us know how you are helping bridge the city.